Welcome to Rec Talks, a podcast dedicated to the latest trends from the world of rec tech, fintech, and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Know Your Customer. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Kieran Askin as my guest. Kieran is the Global Head of Financial Crime at international investment management firm Invesco. For 17 years, he was a detective in the Metropolitan Police working as a financial investigator and was the head of intelligence at the National Terrorist FIU, leading a large team of financial investigators supporting anti-terrorist operations in the UK and abroad. Kieran, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Klaus. I think it's the first time we have uh, on this podcast someone with extensive experience on the law enforcement side of the money laundering fight. And this is something extremely fascinating for me, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Can you tell us a bit more about your journey to date and how was your experience transitioning from the Met Police to the world of AML compliance and financial services? Sure thing. So, so as you mentioned, I spent 17 years in the Met. During my time there, I was in a number of different roles, everything from uniform patrol, armed response to organized crime and counterterrorism. And whilst there's many skill sets that weren't quite as useful to my transition to financial services, such as driving past cars or breaking down doors, uh, actually some skill sets were uh, a natural fit. So being able to interpret and understand regulations and guidance, police work within a heavily regulated framework, and, and you, you have to know a lot about the law and be a, a practitioner of the law. So being able to translate these into practical processes, that's something that is good for any compliance officer to have. Also having experienced crimes from the, the more mundane to the extreme, it does give you a good grounding in how to respond appropriately and in a sort of measured way to financial crime risk. So when I'm reviewing SARS or when I'm reviewing my, my team's SARS, having sort of seen thousands of them over the years, been able to sort of understand what point officers spectrum are, are we sort of dealing with in terms of the seriousness or, or being able to react but not overreact to, to, to what's in front of you is quite a good skill set to have and something that allowed me to kind of hit the ground running whilst I learned about the complexities of financial services, which I'm still definitely learning today. Very interesting. It, it mirrors a bit my own starting point. In my last role before founding Know Your Customer, I was heading the uh, digital engine control the vision really of a aircraft manufacturer. And you would think like, how is that remotely similar to AML? But of course, aircraft manufacturing and um, building digital systems into these aircrafts is something that is extremely regulated. It is always said that to certify a new aircraft or a new engine for an aircraft, you need to produce documentation that weighs as least as much as the part you're trying to uh, certify. I wonder if there is a similar ratio somewhere in our space. I'm sure there are many learnings that you have brought into your new role from the law enforcement days. What are the differences? I'd say a key insight from sort of this side of the fence is that there's always a bigger picture to look at. I mean, law enforcement see one part of the picture we in financial services see the other part. And it's always a worry or comforting to know that, that there are other people with other pieces of the jigsaw. It doesn't always work out well. And sometimes you can put reports in either as a, an MLRO or a victim, and it goes into this black box that you never see anything again. And you think, is actually anybody reading these reports? And I know one criticism that a lot of firms and, and financial services give against law enforcement is that they don't get any feedback 
for the reports they submit. So sort of what's the point? So just to reassure sort of listeners, there is a lot of resource and there are a lot of very clever people and it's getting a lot better and a lot more joined up within law enforcement. So whilst your your one burglary, your one fraud might not get a lot of time, if there's a theme or a trend and if there is a, a wider conspiracy that you only see one part and then a bank has got another part and a payment service provider has got another part, law enforcement is getting really, really good at drawing that together pulling the intelligence and then turning that into sort of action. And we see sort of all the time, I mean, the, the Met Police in the last couple of weeks have seized about a quarter of a billion euros worth of Bitcoin. And all these things are at least partly driven by intelligence that comes from financial services. I mean, every investigation that I was involved in in counterterrorism, we use SAR information on every single one of them. Sometimes it might only be a sort of a one small piece of the jigsaw. But other times it was the, the main driver for the investigation. So I definitely encourage all of my peers to sort of carry on being that important piece of the jigsaw and keep putting SARS in and there'll always be a bigger picture. As KOSC is at the very beginning of a relationship, I often wonder if our company could also play a bigger role in creating meaningful reports to law enforcement at this very beginning. Um, most financial institutions concentrate on suspicious uh, transaction reports of actual transactions later on in the re relationship that already had started. But what about all those relationships that never come to pass because the applicants for a new account or a new relationship don't get through the AML screening? Another point I'd, I'd like to make, there are actually sometimes instances where the processing of these reports isn't going so well. We have seen that in Germany, for example. Did you see how they were behind on about 60,000 reports or so? And yeah. uh, after a couple of months, I had it down to 40,000. I wonder if there needs to be more automation there or can we help from our rec tech side? Have you used technology on that side as well? When I left law enforcement, technology was still sort of very much in its infancy. There were some systems that we used to be able to aggregate and do data analytics, but it was very manual or use of, of people who were very clever with Excel rather than anything any more high tech than that. But it, it gave you the insight into the power of intelligence. And if you had a, a really good analyst using not such a good system like Excel, it's not designed for that. But if you have a good analyst being able to pick those sort of nuggets of information that you know are there, then having systems and sort of red tech solutions that can do that much more quickly, easier. I mean, we do use data analytics at Invesco quite a lot for various different reasons. We use it for sales, but we also use it for investigation. So data analytics is, is a very powerful tool to be able to visualize what you kind of know is there, but can't prove is there or just can't find it or looking at sort of trends of uh, transactions to a particular jurisdiction, looking at a, a 50,000 line spreadsheet that, that you might sort of notice three or four references to, I don't know, it's a, a RAN or something. But it's only if you put it into data visualization, it can see it on a map. You can see where the hotspots are. And that's where I think certainly investigations and intelligence, reg tech can play, can play a big role. Thinking about compliance teams, uh, you mentioned you encourage compliance teams to continue issuing those reports and uh, they are being processed. What else should they concentrate on? What kind of intelligence is particularly useful for the financial investigators? Great question. So I always think of a SAR as being there for two reasons or two parts. There's the bit that as a nominated officer or an MLRO, the law says you have to do to sort of cover yourself and cover your firm. You need to identify and report that suspicious activity. And you do the sort of preamble within the body of the report where you describe 
briefly your business model because a detective in London won't necessarily know what a asset management firm does. You always have to have that preamble to try and get them sort of in the mindset. Uh, and then you talk about your customer's behavior or the transaction that led you to become suspicious. All of that is very useful and solves the problem of, of SAR reporting. It's of no use whatsoever to a police officer or an intelligence analyst. They don't really care what asset management does or, or the fact that you've had this client for 15 years and they've done this transaction, that transaction. All they want is the actionable intelligence, which is a phone number, an email address, uh, an IP address. We used to, in law enforcement, talk about dirty phones and clean phones. The drug dealer won't give their actual real phone number to the policeman. They'll give it to their bank, but they won't give it to the policeman. So you very often will have a criminal, and certainly the, the better criminals will have multiple sets of phone numbers, email addresses. They'll even be using VPNs. But banks will often prevent you accessing their system via VPN. So you very often will have the clean identifiers. And that is the golden nugget of information that is very, very important with SAR. And, and my team are very experienced. Every single time we file a SAR, we always, always, always make sure we put as much identifiers into that SAR. It's, I think, more important than the bit that comes before it, the why. The why is interesting, but when the UK files more than 500,000 SARs a year, the only bits of that information that's really used is the phone numbers, the email addresses, the IP addresses. That's the most important. 500,000? Yes. <laughs> that is, is quite a number, yeah. And would you have an idea how many of those are actual, not just suspicious, but criminal? The National Crime Agency periodically issues its report on SARS in terms of the numbers and trends it sees. I'd say mostly because of the finite resources law enforcement have. Very, very few, I would say, certainly less than 10%, probably more towards 1%, actually result in a criminal investigation and a, and a prosecution. But that's not to say that those other 99% aren't without merit. They may give a little indication of interactions between different criminal groups. And so, so very rarely will, will a single SAR result in an actual arrest. But it'll be, like I said earlier, that, that one piece of the jigsaw. It might only be a minor piece, but it's often the piece that law enforcement just can't get through traditional means at their disposal, let it be like surveillance or interviews or house searches. It's a small but nonetheless extremely important piece of the jigsaw. Thinking about the compliance professionals' skill sets with more technology, that must change over time, and it has already. From your point of view, what are the most important skills that compliance professionals need to have and cultivate in today's environment? How are these changing, and what can compliance specialists do to future-proof their career? Yeah, I mean, so the landscape is definitely changing. I mean, the asset management industry is probably slower than most, certainly slower than even traditional banks and, and definitely slower than startup banks to adopt technology. But it's changing. Compliance officers are also traditionally quite conservative. They like to operate in an environment that they are comfortable in and that they can explain because that's what the regulator tells us we need to do. We need to explain what we're doing and what we're using. But technology can be very powerful. And I mentioned before about data analytics, looking at trends and automation. We're starting to use a lot more of that just to be able to make the processes sew them together, but also make them more efficient and sort of allow the compliance officer or the AMN analyst to spend time on value-added processes rather than just process processes. Even simple automation can save a lot of time. As you sort of start to get into sort of more black box solutions, like, like a pure black box transaction monitoring system, that's then when compliance officers get a bit more nervous. So being able to understand blockchain, just having a fairly 
basic but practitioner knowledge of what blockchain is, how it works, what are the sort of things that it can do, but what are the things that it can't do, and just demystify what are acronyms and what are sort of quite scary terms out there for people like us who are used to working with a printed out piece of paper and a sort of policy or, or, or a spreadsheet, bringing together, I suppose, the futuristic almost technologies that are bread and butter for, for fintech providers and regtech providers and um, meeting in the middle your traditional compliance officers. Compliance officers and AML operations folks definitely need to evolve in, into what is the future. I've seen enough systems to understand that the future is kind of here now. We even see technology being used as a way of, of selling products or even creating products. I mean, that there are now crypto products out there that you can buy and trade. Blockchain is, is allowing for sort of T plus virtually zero in terms of settlements of trade. So the salespeople, the products are, are speeding up. So we need to kind of speed up to be able to respond to those alerts that come out of the system. We haven't got days to investigate now. We've probably got hours to investigate alerts. We kind of need to catch up or else we'll be left behind. And we'll be pulling our firm behind as well by not being able to respond to the needs of the salespeople or the product providers. What do you see as the greatest barriers currently to adopting new technologies to streamline AML and compliance? I get probably an email a day from a vendor offering to sell me the next great KYC tool or offering to get access to more company registries than their competitors. The market is, is quite saturated. It's difficult to sort of see through why vendor A is better than vendor B is better than vendor C. Certainly asset management, but regulated entities generally, we have to be very careful and considered. We don't tend to have lots and lots of different vendors doing lots and lots of different things. And we don't tend to turn those over very often. So we might only change or, or consider changing a screening vendor once every three to five years. So when I sort of get those emails, I generally ignore them. It's just because spending half an hour on the phone every single day learning about the next greatest thing, I, I just haven't got time for that. To sort of raise the eye of interest to potential sort of buyers like, like myself, it's about sort of differentiation, but also acting as more of a partner rather than sending me a sort of a, a glossy brochure of this great, great system you've got. The firms that I've kept a relationship with over the years are those that have maybe hosted a roundtable with some peers and facilitated discussion and sold by not selling. It's a buyer's market and the buyers aren't buying 10 things a day. They might be buying one thing every two, three years. So having that appreciation, I suppose, and, and adopting some sales strategy is probably a, a good tip, I'd say. Thank you very much because this is, <laughs> this is interesting for us as a vendor. I absolutely get the difficulty in understanding all these offerings in the market because there's a lot going on in the market and it's fast, it's changing a lot. And websites or brochures often don't really tell you enough about the company or the offering really and what is different to even find out. I have to admit that's even the same for myself. I should know what other companies in the space are doing, but looking at their websites or going to a trade show is still hard for me to even understand what they're about. I think it is mostly coming from that general problem of uh, startups or tech companies that They don't want to exclude any potential customers and thereby pitch their products to extremely broad audience without specializing enough. But on the other hand, many of those offerings probably are not differentiated a lot. Coming from a new angle from tech, we are also still learning to see the world from the compliance team's perspective. 
and that is a, a learning process that's still going on. I mean, you must have gone through that process early on after you left the police force. It's a different world. You come with your viewpoints and you now see it from the other side or the inside. And it's the same here. We had to learn a lot about uh, compliance teams and how they work. We haven't really spoken about regulators so much, but how do you see the role of regulators in promoting the use of technology and other specialist rec tech in the financial services? Regulators are in a very difficult position that they have to protect retail and investors, they have to protect markets. Technology is coming, it is here. So I think it's difficult, but nonetheless important that regulators balance that role in being a gatekeeper, keeping us all safe. But whilst promoting certainly the UK as being a place to do business and using RegTech as a tool of differentiation for UK PLC, I mean, certainly with, with sort of Brexit, we kind of need the UK to be as strong as possible. And technology and all the great startups we have in the UK is probably one of the great sales tools that we have of, of sort of selling why the UK is a great place to come and do business there's an opportunity for not just the FCA, but regulators generally around the globe to actually use reg tech and technology as a way of selling to come and do business in that country, which kind of might need the regulators to pivot slightly of being a, a pure conservative regulator to be something that actually governments could use as a tool to encourage business. And that certainly worked out very well in the UK. If you look at all the challenger banks that came out of this one country, that is short of amazing. If you look at other European countries, even bigger economies, they have been slower. And part of the equation there is they do have the tech know-how, but uh, the regulator was not forthcoming, was was very conservative and uh, kept these things under wrap for longer than they should have, because now the companies that came out of the UK are dominating the European market already. Yeah. And the FCA has actually, I'd say, been very good at challenging firms to innovate and promoting that sort of risk taking within the sandbox environment that they've been using for a number of years now. So I'd say that the FCA, I've got a good story to tell on this. We see similar things happening in Asia in the financial centers there. The Hong Kong HKMA is very encouraging of the regulated entities using RegTech. The MAS in Singapore is, is doing a lot of initiatives there, even financing them. Uh, so other regulators have copped on as well. That leads me to my last question that I ask all my guests. Kieran, if tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, what would be the first thing you would tackle and why? The first thing I'd tackle would be consistency of regulation, certainly in the AML space. I mean, FATF is trying to get us all to come to a single type of regulation, but even within EU where we have directives, there's so much variance of different interpretations and different gold plating or even just timeliness of implementing sort of the basics. See a number of European countries being taken to court by the EU for failure to implement money laundering directives. We see countries like, to use sort of two examples, Germany and Luxembourg, who've implemented the same directives in fairly different ways, which makes the life of a compliance officer more tricky mm -hmm. uh, and, and more inefficient. We probably spend more time than is necessary implementing different variations of the same directive in different ways and different policies. But also putting my sort of law enforcement hat on as well, where you've got differences, you then for got vulnerabilities, that the criminals are good at knowing where those differences are, and they will target the weakest points. And once they have got that weakest point, they're into the system then, and, it, and it's too late. So I think for efficiency and cost effectiveness and for actually achieving what you want them to do, consistency has got to be the, the way forward. 
Kieran, thank you so much. This chat has been great. Thank you. Thank you, Klaus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider, Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks.